1: The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Cucquier, the data editor, and I'm talking today with Oliver Morton, our briefings editor, and Jason Palmer, our science correspondent. In this episode, we're going to talk about cells with lasers and the space probe New Horizons' last look at Pluto. First, let's start with laser enhanced cells. Jason, what's going on?
0: Well, this is making life lays, making cells into actual lasers.
1: Okay. So expand on this. First, what is a laser and why do we want to put it into a cell?
0: Uh, Well, the first part's fairly simple to describe. Every kind of laser that you've seen before in the films and in your laser pointers and so on basically needs a few things. Uh, A source of energy, something that can absorb and then re-emit that energy, and then something that kind of bounces that energy back and forth in what you would call a resonator, right? So... I was looking at pictures of Charlie Towns yesterday. The first of these things was absolutely enormous with the miniaturization of everything else. These things are smaller. So there are a couple of papers out this week that are broadly doing the same thing from two people who worked together actually a few years ago to do the first cells that can laze. And this, to be honest, I, I struck me at the time as kind of more of a, a parlor trick, right? They put some fluorescent dye into some cells and put some cells between a couple of mirrors and hey-ho, you've, you've made a laser. What that might be good for didn't seem very clear at the time. But if you bring the resonator down smaller and smaller and smaller and actually get all of that bouncing and all that amplifying and all that light coming out and so on to go on entirely within a cell, now you're talking. This is a little bit more interesting.
1: Why? What are you going to do with it?
0: Well, perhaps the most interesting thing is to be able to sort of individually track cells, right? So there are lots of interesting tricks where you can get cells to sort of emit light, and you can see what they're doing, and the, the light changes as the chemistry changes or as biology is kind of happening, and that's all very clever stuff. But you don't get kind of an, an individual signal that this is me. With lasers, what's interesting about laser light, and the reason why it's of great use for everything from uh, barcode scanners to to what else? What's the extreme opposite of barcode scanners? Holly? I guess it's blowing things up with evil ray guns of death. Yes,
1: yes. well, they don't, they, that's a hypothetical application. That is a
0: hypothetical application. Yeah, we don't but have he, that. J- yet. He, he asked me for for um, expecting Mr. Bond to die.
2: <laughs> Indeed.
1: <laughs> no, but so we use, do we use lasers in medicine?
2: No, we yeah. use lasers in medicine. We use lasers in dentistry. For, so, ca- ca- sure. yeah. We use lasers Surgery for various one. sorts of welding. I mean, that would be a high high power laser. Yeah. Okay. And you know, there are um, experimental anti anti missile lasers.
1: Okay, so we have it on everything from barcodes to Ollie's death gun laser. Now we have it at the cellular level.
0: Yeah, the thing that makes these useful for all of these is that all of the light kind of comes out um, in sync. All of the waves are aligned. They have a very well-defined frequency a color, if you like. So normally your fluorescent stuff, when you're looking down your microscope and you've got your cells that have fluorescence coming out, that's all very clever and so on, but it's a big, broad swathe of light. Lasers, one tiny little frequency. That means, in principle, you could track lots of them. Each of them have their own frequency.
1: Does it damage the cell at all?
0: Well, this is exactly the question, um, and as it is with the fluorescence business that we 've seen till now, is can you get these things in there without disrupting what the cell would get up to anyway? so at the moment that 's an open question, but they 've got some pretty amazing uh, pictures haunting pictures actually of doing exactly this pig skin, which is lazing again, it strikes you as a parlor trick, but there is a purpose to it.
1: What are the actual practical applications? Why would we want to do this?
0: Well, if you had sort of a, a reporter cell of that sort, you could track the progression of cancer, for instance, or when you know organisms are small and there are not that many cells and so on. You can see how growth happens. Lots of the mechanics of growth, for instance, are not very well understood. And what we know about fat droplets or perhaps these plastic micro resonators and so on is that you know you squeeze them a bit and the color changes, right? So they become reporters not just of here's me, but here's me and here's what my local environment is like. So it's a particularly sort of precise, high resolution way to look into these things.
1: Sounds great. Well, listen, thank you, Jason. Certainly. So let's now move on to, or should I say, fly past Pluto. Oliver Morton, you're here to tell us about the last glimpse of the dwarf planet before it reaches the Kuiper Belt. Tell us about it.
2: Well, the planet's not going anywhere. Well, I mean, it's going round and round. But no, it's the spacecraft that's moving aside, and it's taken this lovely farewell shot of Pluto in which you can see the sunlight coming through the atmosphere as it passes through Pluto's shadow. So it's sort of like looking at all Pluto's sunrises and sunsets all at once. It's a lovely picture. What's great, though, is that there's still so much more... Although the spacecraft New Horizons is now leaving Pluto at a hell of a speed... Uh, there's a huge amount more science to come because there's only about 5% of the data has come down, and this is what's really, to me, one of the things that's really mind-blowing about this mission is that uh, last time we saw an entirely new planetary surface, which was Neptune's moon Triton, which looks kind of like Pluto in some ways, uh, in 1989, the spacecraft that went past, Voyager 2, had 64 megabytes of memory, <laughs> um, which were on, don't laugh, it was a, That was amazing <laughs> at the time. No, I know, I know. My, w- a, my watch has more than 600 megabytes. This Spacecraft that was designed in the early 1970s, but had 64 okay, now you can think it has 64 megabytes of tape memory, and that was all it could store before it had to talk back. Now, New Horizons, being a much more modern craft, has as much as a really decent thumb drive, it's got eight gigs of memory. But because it's seven and a half billion kilometers away, it takes it a long time to get this stuff all downloaded. So, it's going to be a whole year before we get all the data from this very brief encounter a couple of weeks ago and can, can
0: I ask am am I right in thinking that what we 're seeing now is just the sort of the low res data this is it 's not kind of
2: i think some data has come in in high res, but some of the data hasn 't i mean some of the instruments haven 't yet been really interrogated at all as far as I can make out but uh, there 'll definitely be some higher res pictures because among other things they can 't know in advance which of the pictures will necessarily have the best imagery in it the imagery that 's been brought down already, shows a quite remarkably interesting and rather perplexing planetary surface.
1: So tell us about that. There were a lot of surprises from the photos that we saw. I think
2: one of the surprises, the biggest surprise, the surprise, is that it just looks kind of fresh. And the general consensus is that if you leave a small planet-like object like Pluto out in the solar system for four and a half billion years, it's going to get knocked around a bit and start looking quite old. And quite large parts of Pluto, like this heart-shaped feature that's caught the imagination, look really quite fresh. And is that because something's happening from outside, that the atmosphere is freezing down on it? Is it because there are processes from inside, that there's an ocean inside that has ways of resurfacing the planet? Or is it actually because of the processes which knock things around, asteroid impacts and such like happen at a much lower rate out in the Kuiper Belt. We don't really know much about the Kuiper Belt at the moment, and it's possible that impacts out there are either rarer than people have thought or that they're gentler than people have thought, and so... Things may not end up looking like the Moon or like Mars, where any surface that 's left exposed gets pelted by impact on a fairly regular basis.
1: when do we expect to see the rest of the data come through
2: well there 's non imaging data coming back I think for the next six eight weeks or so the, all sorts of other sorts of science go on on the on the spacecraft, and I believe the next image set comes down sometime in September, and you know it 'll be coming in at something like a thousand bits per second, and this is a this spacecraft is transmitting with a 12-watt transmitter, and that signal is going to be weakened by, I don't know, I, I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation with it's something like a trillion, trillion times weaker than that when it gets to Earth, but I could be out by... A
1: so, You know, <laughs> totally. so, you know, if you're
2: actually, kids, if you're actually doing any astrogation, please do your own calculations. But it's an unbelievably weak signal. Uh, even so, from the edge of the solar system at 12 watts, they're able to pick up 1000 bits per second. And that's great. But as I said, there's an eight gig uh, memory to drain. So it's going to take a long time, something like a year.
1: Let me ask a strange question. If it's broadcasting just through the solar system, and we're able to pluck it out of the ether, Why wouldn't anyone outside of NASA, like you or I, be able to receive the signal too?
2: You absolutely would if you had a dedicated 70-meter diameter radio telescope with state-of-the-art receivers in it. In my backyard. You know, if if, if you've got one of those things, then that's absolutely fine. Uh, I don't think anyone's trying to be proprietary or anything about this. But, you know, the great 70-meter dish in in the Mojave Desert is tracking it. And so there are 70-meter dishes. There's another one in, in Australia, I think and they are really incredibly fine instruments. So, yes, you could listen out for it, but unless you're the very best in the game, you're not going to hear anything.
1: Okay, so I'm not going to try to do that Among the data that is going to be brought back is some information about the atmosphere.
2: Well, we've already got some of that because we have this wonderful picture of all the sunsets, all the sunrises, which has shown that there are layers in the atmosphere, which isn't that surprising, but they go a lot higher than you expected. And what's happening here is that um, we've seen this in other planetary atmospheres. You put a methane atmosphere out around your planet and you hit it with ultraviolet from the sun and the methane starts reacting with itself and you get this gunk. Which technically is called tholins, which I believe Carl Sagan, uh, term Carl Sagan invented as the Greek for gunk. But anyway, there's gunk in the atmosphere. And that gunk falls down, and that's probably why some of the, they explain some of the differences in color markings between the different parts of Pluto, that there are the, the more gunky bits and the less gunky bits, or the bits with gunk and frost and the bits with just plain gunk.
0: Can I just say, you, you think about things that go that far away from the sun as icy, dead, rocky, you know, it's pretty quiet there and so on. Even what we've seen already, even this low resolution data, even this small fraction of data, kind of paints a picture of something that really is quite alive and there's any of these... Energetic processes going on. There's possibly cryovolcanoes. There might be, you know, who knows, plate tectonics. We've seen layers in the atmosphere and so on. This is not just a lump of rock and ice. And I'm pretty sure that's how most people think about Pluto and everything else in the Kuiper Belt.
2: That's kind of true. But I mean, you've got to always adjust your mindset. We're talking about activity at the moment, whereas the things that we're seeing as evidence of activity are on Earth seen as evidence of inactivity, right? Glacial is a term for not changing on Earth. And you see glaciers on Pluto and you go, wow, activity, but, you know, it's glaciers. <laughs> so that's what I'll say. Yes, people did not expect, they did not expect Triton to look quite as um, exciting as it did when they went past with Voyager, but they did not expect, I think, most of them did not expect, they may have hoped for Pluto to look this interesting. And that means, presumably, that there's some sort of energy input or there are processes which use the energy particularly efficiently and sort of like, eke out a lot of landscape change for not much energy input.
1: Well, that's fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Ollie. Thank you, Jason, for joining us. Sadly, that's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. Before we close the program, allow me to make an appeal like we did last week. We would love to hear from you and get your feedback. If you have suggestions for how we can improve the show, please email us at letters at economist dot com. That's letters at economist dot com. For more news on science and technology, please go to Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is
0: Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools,